0: Lord, we just want to worship you and praise you and acknowledge, as that song has done so beautifully in the the voices of these students and all of us together, you are truly worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. Father, it sobers us to realize that among those things that you have created was our lips, our mouths, our bodies, everything about us is for your glory. And our desire is that somehow through the lessons that we learn as we go through your word and understand more fully what your will is for us, that we can use all that we have for your glory and for your praise. And we look forward to doing that in eternity. Remind us, Father, that eternity begins right here and now. We are really just on the, the threshold of eternity as we prepare to meet our God. And it sobers this Father to realize that there are well over 7 billion people on planet Earth right now that are someday going to come face to face with their God. Remind us that the worth of one soul is more than the whole world. Impact us with that reality to the extent that our lips, our tongues, and our hearts would be open to those that are lost. Even for the salvation of one soul, it would be worth it all. So prepare us, Father, even with this message this morning. You know I feel so very unprepared this morning, maybe more so than I've ever felt in my life. Father, may the prayers continue to go up in my behalf, if that's not a selfish prayer right now, and just pray that you would take these feeble, faltering lips and these trembling knees and somehow use this message for your glory, for your praise, and for each one of us to be fully equipped, more fully equipped for the work of the ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ and for the salvation of souls. We just commit all this to your care and keeping your guidance and your power. Be with me as the clock kicks on and the moments roll on and there's a message that needs to be gotten out. Just help me, Father, to be a good steward of this time that is before me. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. What a blessing it is to continue on in learning to know more about God the Holy Spirit. That holy person of the Trinity that has... No arms, no legs, no feet, no hands, no fingers, no voice except yours. And He wants to use that. The glorious ministry of the Spirit. Moving on into the third area. The first two, we talked about God the Holy Spirit as teacher and guide. And that message was intended to as teacher and guide be Prepare us as disciples in the world. The unbelieving world, may I say it like this, is not ready for a teacher and a guide. The unbelieving world needs something else first. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit as teacher and guide is for the disciple in the world. The second message we had was that the Holy Spirit would testify of Jesus. And that is to the disciples and the world. Testify both to the world, in the courtroom of the world, as well as in the courtroom of our hearts. This third message, we will get from St. John chapter 16. Begin reading in verse 7. We'll read through verse 11. And this is, that He will reprove the world. And it is to call the disciples, this is to call disciples out of the world. They're not disciples yet. They're of the world. To call them out. So we'll begin reading in verse 7 of St. John uh, 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's the words of Jesus. Another one of those areas where He is telling His disciples about the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is expedient for you that I go away. It's better, he's saying, for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Very clear and simple teachings of the Lord. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin... And of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. And of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. How does God the Holy Spirit reprove the world? Well, maybe we need to define some things first before we can answer that question what does the word reprove mean I have some definitions that I've written down here it means to convict or to bring under conviction we don't use the word reprove as much in our language today as back perhaps as this was translated um, in the King James Version to convict, to bring under conviction, to find fault with. Maybe uh, I can remember times when I was disobedient to my parents and and sometimes getting acting up a little bit and maybe we, parents would be visiting and they had a little saying back in those days that children are to be seen and not heard. And so when they said that, uh, that meant that was a little reproof. That was a gentle reproof that you better calm down, you better quiet down, you're making too much commotion here. And then if that didn't work, why the next reproof was would be to, I would have to go down and sit on the floor on a chair beside my dad. And then con- conversation could continue. Reproof. To find fault with or to call into account or to bring to light or expose. These are all very interesting definitions of this word reproof. And think about this in connection with what Jesus is saying. This is going to be a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Another definition is to demonstrate by argument or to convince of a crime. And again, think about these things because they're going to factor into our lives before this is all over with. To persuade anyone to do a thing by presenting reasons. Okay. So that's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. Maybe a couple examples of uh, reproof. We don't really have exactly what took place as far as the, the dialogue between John the Baptist and Herod. But John the Baptist was put into prison and eventually his head was cut off because of his reproof of Herod for having his brother Philip's wife living in adultery. That was reproof, very clearly. Don't know exactly how John the Baptist did it. The Bible says that he said, it is not right for you to have her wife, her to wife. Reproof. There was another example of reproof that I thought about, and that is the reproof of Jesus uh, to Some people at one time when there was this woman that was taken in adultery and there were these men that brought her to Jesus and said, the law says that she ought to be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus had some words for them. He had some actions for them. He stood, kneeled down and did some writing in the sand. And then he said, he that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And then, beginning with the oldest to the youngest, they went out one by one without a word to say. That was reproof. That was bringing something to light. He didn't have to say much, don't know what he wrote in the sand, but it clearly was reproof. It called into account, it brought something to light or exposed. This woman was reproved as well. He said, where are your your, your accusers? And she said, there, there's no man, Lord. Nobody's accused me now, now because they've all left. Well, he said, you go and sin no more. Reproof can be very severe. Reproof can be very gentle and anywhere in between. Well, let's define, make another definition here. What about the world? He says, he will reprove the world of sin. Now, this isn't talking necessarily about the believer or about the disciple. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying this is what's going to happen to the world. And this is a ministry that the Holy Spirit is going to have to the world. He's going to reprove the world uh, in three areas. So what is the world? Well, the world, uh, the Greek for that is cosmos, and it, uh, in its strictest sense, just simply means an orderly arrangement. But it can include everything from the 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 world itself, the actual global world, it can include the inhabitants of the world or the world system and on and on it goes. But we're going to use it here in a little bit and I think you're going to get a little bit clearer idea of what Jesus was talking about when he said the Holy Spirit will reprove the world. Um, 1 John 5.19, very short little verse there. It says, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Sounds like two different classifications of people to me. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. I don't see as there's any reason to define it any, any clearer than that. There's a line that, that God has drawn and says that there are those that are of God, And there are those that are of the world. Does this give us any clue at all as to what the Holy Spirit's ministry might be or what He might be wanting to do? If you've got a classification of people that are of God and you've got a classification of people that are of the world, what does God want? Salvation of souls. What's this all about? What's the reproof of the Holy Spirit all about? What's it for? Is it just that God wants to just swing this big hammer or this big club over the world and say, you're bad boys, you're bad girls, you're naughty. Shame on you. Is that what God's trying to do? Is God just swinging this club and just just wanting to come down on everybody and just, just hammer them down because of their wickedness? That's not what it's about. It is about salvation. So, when we read things like this about the ministry of the Holy Spirit reproving the world of sin and of righteousness of judgment, it's about salvation. It's about those that fall into the classification of the world moving from that into the classification of those that are of God. It is just a blessing just to read in Scripture the way that it just makes it so clearly defined what God wants and where people are and where He wants them to be. Let's turn to Galatians um, chapter 1, verse 4. We're going to get several scriptures here. Hopefully we'll cover this in the allotted time that we have. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. These are, are really extremely important nuggets of truth and, and scriptures that, that I think we ought to have uh, embedded in our minds, at least written down, if not uh, memorized. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds to me like there is a ministry that needs to, where the Holy Spirit needs to be involved here because it says, who gave Himself for our sins, that He might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. That's what the Holy Spirit has done in our lives. That's what He wants to do in the lives of millions and billions of people. Deliver! He gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil world. And it is a present evil world. Regardless of what year it is, it's still a present evil world. Romans chapter 3. Paul has delivered a clear and concise indictment of all mankind as he presents both Jew and Gentile uh, guilty before God, and he comes to a conclusion after he presents uh, the God's high holy standard of righteousness. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, he says this, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. So this is what the Holy Spirit has to work with. He has a tremendous ministry if all the world stands guilty before God. How's He going to do that? How's He going to accomplish this? How's He going to reprove them? And so back in John's Gospel, verse 8 of chapter 16, he, when He is come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So three areas that this Holy Spirit is going to have a ministry in doing. I'm going to have to go quickly through these. There's a lot more that could be said about them. He says He will reprove the world of sin and He explains why. Because they believe not on Me. What's the worst sin that could ever be committed? What's the greatest, most vile sin that could ever be committed? You stop and think and let your mind go wherever it wants to go. But the greatest sin of all is the sin of unbelief. The fact that they do not believe on me. That's what it all boils down to. If they don't believe on Him, then what kind of a lifestyle is going to follow that? All kinds of vile things will come out. But the Holy Spirit's ministry is to convict them of sin because they do not believe on Him. Or, turn that around, the Holy Spirit's ministry, as He reproves the world of sin, is to get them to realize their sin and to get them to believe in Jesus Christ as being the only only way out, the only solution to the sin problem. He will reprove the world of sin because they believe not on Me. He will reprove the world of righteousness. And he says, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Why does he say that? What's that all about? Jesus Christ was accused of many, many things. He was accused of being an imposter. He was accused of being a magician. He's doing these things uh, by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. He's working these miracles because of this and that. All kinds of accusations Among them, he claimed to be the Son of God. And he claimed himself to be the Son of God, and he claimed that he would voluntarily give himself, he would die, he would be crucified, he would be raised the third day, and he would ascend up unto the Father. All these things are things that he said. Now, if they didn't happen... If he was wrong, would he have ascended up to the Father? You see, that was God's final and ultimate seal upon the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, proving himself to be the Son of God, proving every prediction, every prophecy, every statement that he made about himself to be true. And the final stamp of approval was his ascension 40 days after his resurrection. Reprove the world of righteousness because I go to my Father. A lot more could be said on that. The third area, He will reprove the world of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So here's this this world system again. And there is a prince of this world. Sometimes He's called the prince of the power of the air. Jesus calls Him the prince of this world. He's the one that, that... appears to have this world system in his control. And so these wicked things that are going on are going on under the power and control of the evil one, Lucifer, the one that said, I will be like the Most High and drew one third of the angels to follow with him, the prince of this world. But he's judged. And if he's judged, that implies that all of those that would fall under his camp all of those that would be in the world are going to be judged also. So people need to be convinced of coming judgment. There is judgment day coming. And that is something, a, a ministry that the Holy Spirit has to do. He has to accomplish this. He has to convince. He has to convict. He has to bring to reality and the lives of those that fall into this category of the world the reality of the fact that they are sinners, that Jesus Christ is absolutely righteous, and that judgment day is coming. That's putting it in the most simple terms that I can. Quick summary of that. Okay, so we have spelled out before us the Holy Spirit's ministry. He's got a big job ahead of him, doesn't he? What's he, how's he going to do it how's he going to do it without any body how's he going to do it without any fingers or hands or or even a mouth how does he do it I don't know this is this is deep stuff to me when I saw this list of five topics that I need to talk on I looked at number one and thought yeah you know I can I think I can Find some information in God's word on that. And looked at point number two. And yeah, I think I can find some information in God's word on that. And looked at number three. And yeah, I'm, I'm aware of this passage of scripture here that talks about what the Holy Spirit will do. That He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. But but how? How? I don't see that. Jesus continued on and said uh, and this is the way he's going to do it. He's going to dot 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 doesn't say. So we've got something to put together here that some pieces of the puzzle. I thought, well maybe he'll he'll get man's attention. If he can just get man's attention, maybe that would work. Maybe that would reprove the world. Not too far from here, on May eighteenth, 1980, there was worldwide attention drawn to the site of Mount St. Helens on that Sunday morning about 8.37 a.m. When, when several million cubic miles of, of, uh, of earth just blew up out of the site of Mount St. Helens. Several thousand cubic miles. I think that was an exaggeration. So that got people's attention. What got my attention was maybe what might have been God working. I don't know. I understand that there was a a woodsman that that just became so overwhelmed with the, the sin of the world. And he had a burden for souls. He had a burning desire that Oh, if men would just, just see the, the awesomeness of our God, and if He would just display His power in some mighty way, that perhaps it would bring salvation and bring more souls to the realization of their need for a Savior. So they prayed a prayer. If you want to turn to that prayer, it's back in Isaiah chapter 64. I'm not sure. The details on this are a little bit sketchy now. I don't recall exactly how long before Mount St. Helens erupted, but there was a time as he uh, meditated upon the sad conditions of the world back in 1980 and had a tremendous burden for souls that he knelt somewhere down in the, the the Cascade Mountains here and prayed this prayer. Isaiah chapter sixty four. Oh that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. He's Isaiah's praying for an attention getter, something that would get man's attention, and that they would they would experience this great salvation that God has offered, that Isaiah prophesied about back in, in other, uh, his passages of prophecy there, especially the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Well, God could do that. And God, uh, I don't know if, if this was, if the eruption of Mount St. Helens was a result of this woodsman's prayer or not. I don't know, only God knows that. And it certainly did get people's attention for a while. And I really wonder, most likely there were souls that were saved. But do you suppose that they were, they were saved simply by just, oh, Mount St. Helens erupted. I'm a sinner. God is righteous. Christ died on the cross. I need to confess and repent. And Do you suppose that they were able to just simply connect those dots on their own? They can't. They need somebody else to help them connect those dots. So, how does the Holy Spirit reprove the world? There's a lot of things He could do. We could read back in, in uh, the Book of Revelation about great cataclysmic events that are going to take place. Hailstones—I think about hundred and eighty-pound or two hundred-pound hailstones come out of the out of the sky. The, the moon turns to blood. I think a third of the, of the uh, ocean turns to blood. Uh, terrible events take place. And what does it say after that? It says, men repented not of their evil deeds. All these things that, that, that God brings upon the earth. I'm not even necessarily saying that that's the work of the Holy Spirit. I would be more inclined to think that that's the work of God the Father. But be that as it may, it may get people's attention. But even then, in those times, apparently they're not able to connect the dots and say, okay, this is happening, and I'm, I'm here. Uh, I need to be saved. Now, undoubtedly, there's salvation comes out of some of that. But at least, by and large, men curse God and just keep on cursing Him for all the bad things that are happening. And we've heard some testimony about that already, about people that, that that's their reason for rejecting God. That's their reason for not being a believer or even reasons or excuses for no longer believing in God is because of bad things happening in the world today. So God can get man's attention, certainly. He can do anything He wants to do. He can get man's attention, but what good does that do if man doesn't know what this is for, why it's for, why it's happening? Let's just move on here a little bit to another way of looking at this as we're trying to figure out how does the Spirit reprove the world? So, Every one of you that have been born again can stop and reflect upon your salvation experience. You can stop and think about whether you experienced any reproof of sin. Was there anything in your life that caused you to realize that you were a sinner? Think about that. Meditate on that for a moment. Was there anything in your life that caused you to recognize the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfection, his perfect sacrifice on the cross, and compare that to your own righteousness and somehow see that as filthy rags? Was there anything in your life that caused you to connect those dots together? Was there anything in your life that caused you to to be aware that Judgment Day is coming someday? And if I don't change, I'm going to face a judge in fear and trembling with condemnation and damnation to eternal hell. I realize that there has been and can be and is some variation in salvation experience. But I suspect that every one of us had some things come into our lives, even from the point of from a child, as Paul wrote to Timothy, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Some of you, maybe most of you, have been raised in godly homes and have had that same experience that Timothy had. That was a way for you to, to, when you reached a point in your life an age and a, a uh, time of reasoning and spiritual maturity to start putting these things together and realize that, you know, I'm not just a happy-go-lucky little child anymore that, that can go about doing anything I want to do and, and uh, no consequences. No. You start realizing, I'm accountable. And then you start hearing these preachers stand up and preach about things like hell and preach about God's wrath and preach about um, judgment and wickedness and sin. And maybe they might start getting specific and naming some sins that, that you feel like you've committed. You know, even if it's... Maybe some of the most obvious and most uh, the ones that we, as children growing up, become aware of, is the very sin of disobedient disobedience to parents. You know that starts to starts to hurt, starts to feel, bring guilt, all kinds of things like that. So, in all that, did you hear the Holy Spirit? actually speaking? Did you hear an audible voice calling out your name? I don't want to deny any of you that, that fact, if that, if that actually happened. But I would say again, most, if not all of us, did not have that experience. We didn't experience it like Saul on, of Tarsus did on the Damascus Road but just little by little, here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. Preachers keep on preaching and parents keep on teaching and and, uh, the Bible is opened up and something from the Word, the Scriptures touches your life and you come under conviction. So, in putting all this together, Here's a question. What action or activity of the Spirit brought you under conviction? What action or activity of the Spirit brought about reproof in your life to the point where it brought you to faith in Jesus Christ and repentance and asking for Christian baptism? You see, it was a process, wasn't it? I think we recognize that in our lives that it was a process. Now I ask you this do you think that the Holy Spirit works much differently in, in other people's lives? I realize that we are pretty much all of one culture here, but go halfway around the globe to those to believers on the other side of the world. Do you think the Holy Spirit worked much differently in their lives? True, some of them, maybe many of them, were not raised in godly homes. But when in reality, when they finally came to the point of realizing that they needed salvation and reaching out for that and experiencing this new birth, the process was quite similar. So that brings us to looking at the Scriptures now a little bit and following through and seeing if we can... can uh, Again, connect more of these dots together and, and figure out how the Holy Spirit will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. How's He going to do that? So we think about how it, how we experienced it in our own lives. How we think that God works like that in the lives of others. Let's see what the uh, Bible says about that. Let's turn to Acts chapter 1. Let's listen to the words of Jesus before He ascended up to the Father. He said in verse 5 of Acts chapter 1. Actually, I should begin reading of verse 4. It says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them. This is, this is the, uh, Luke recounting the experience of Jesus with his um, disciples. It says, Being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. So here we go. Jesus is getting ready to ascend up to the Father. And one more time, He's reiterating this promise, this thing that He's talked about that we've read so much about back in John's Gospel, is now one more time, before He ascends up to the Father, He tells them, just wait. Wait in Jerusalem. Don't try to do this on your own. Don't try to do this at home. It won't work. You've got to wait till you get the promise of the Father. When therefore they were come together, they asked of Him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put into His own power. But notice this. This is what I'm after. Verse 8. But ye shall receive power After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. I believe that that is a key factor in this ministry of the Holy Spirit, reproving the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Is that the Holy Spirit was going to come down as he was promised. As we read about on the day of Pentecost, he would come down upon them, he would infill them, and they would be equipped with power to do exactly what he said here witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the earth, clear down to East and Washington in 2015. Let's see if we can follow through in the book of Acts a little bit more. It would be a sermon in itself, a message in itself, just simply taking these uh, conversion experiences. I think that is important for us to latch on to. When we uh, just wonder, well, what, what does salvation look like? Or what, what's my part in this? Or, or how does it work? Um, what steps do we follow? Uh, What is a necessary ingredient and what isn't an an important ingredient? Uh, Even the question about how soon should baptism take place uh, after one gives evidence of faith and repentance? All those things are here for us in the book of Acts. Praise God for that. And I agree wholeheartedly with Brother John Michael, the acts of the Holy Spirit working through the Apostles. And more than that, I'm not sure exactly how you said it, but in reality, the acts of the Holy Spirit working through the disciples, it didn't, was not limited to the apostles, working through the disciples. And so that's why we have Acts 29. is because there's still another chapter that needs to be written. Because there's still disciples in 2015. You are Acts 29 disciples. Praise God. So I, I would encourage you on your own study, just make it a study of just going through the book of Acts and just even marking in your Bibles each time that salvation was, was the part of the picture here where, where the message of salvation was brought, how God was working, bringing it to, to uh, fallen mankind, to the world. So back in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter is responding to the, the uh, accusation or the, the conclusion that some made as the, when the day of Pentecost was fully come and the Holy Spirit came down upon them and they began to speak in other tongues. He used that as an opportunity to preach a sermon. And when he did, he kind of concluded his sermon this way. Verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, now we're skipping over the sermon that Peter preached, most of it. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What does that sound like to you? It sounds to me like there was reproof that was given and it sounds to me like people came under conviction and the reality of their sin and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and of impending judgment if they didn't change their ways. So they cried out and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Reproof. Reproof of the Holy Spirit. But how did He do it? Through the mouth of Peter. He did it using Peter's mouth, and Peter's lips, and Peter's tongue, and perhaps even Peter's trembling knees. I don't know. Do you suppose Peter just had this sermon all written out, outline form, and just here we go? They asked the question here I am. Or was it, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses? And, rece- and taking the promise that. that You don't even need to necessarily take so much thought about what you're going to say when you're called before magistrates. The Holy Spirit will give you in that hour what you need to say. He doesn't have any lips except your lips or your mouth or your tongue. So what was the results of that? They they cried out, what shall we do? Peter tells them. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So what happens here? Sounds to me like multiplication. If Peter preaches, the Holy Spirit takes the preaching of Peter and brings that into the hearts of those that that are receptive to it. And they cry out, they come under conviction. What shall we do? He says, Repent and be baptized. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So, what's going to happen here? More disciples. We're multiplying here. And that is exactly what the Bible says it says that they were multiplied, believers were multiplied. Praise God. The promise is unto you and to your children. And to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So how does the Holy Spirit reprove the world? Are we able to put any of this together? Let's approach it this way. So the Holy Spirit is God. He's everywhere present. He fills the world. He fills the universe. He also fills believers. And He keeps on filling them. I agree with that. That we need to keep on being filled. I think that's even in the the original language. When it talks about being filled with the Spirit, it means keep on being filled. I guess I would say that any time that you don't feel totally controlled by the Holy Spirit, you're not totally filled. And so keep on being filled by keep on emptying yourself of yourself, pouring yourself out before God, making yourself available before God, surrendering your will to God, that He can fill you and use you and use for your glory and for your praise. Approaching it from another direction then, so the Holy Spirit was there on the day of Pentecost. Certainly, He manifested Himself uh, in flaming tongues that came and sat upon each of them. People saw that, a demonstration. Uh, it's kind of like the dove and the, uh, the other manifestations of the Spirit but as far as the voice that came, it was Peter's voice that came. Now what would have happened if Peter if, if Peter would not have preached that sermon? What would have happened if on the day of Pentecost this thing happened with the Holy Spirit coming down and infilling the disciples and people getting all confused about what's, what's, this, what's going on here and asking the question even, and Peter just clammed up and just, everybody just kind of sat around and looked at each other. What would have happened? How many souls do you think would have been saved that day? Zero. Zero. Let's turn to Acts chapter 4. There was... This is a cosmic battle. I think we need to understand that, that the enemy hears us talking about this and he looks at our notes and looks at our plans and looks at our tracks and and looks at the things that we may have in mind, our study guides and and our marked Bibles and he looks at all that and, and he trembles and starts making some plans. This can't go on this way. We've got to nip this thing in the bud. And that is exactly what took place in uh, the early church. The apostles were called before uh, the uh, priests. Those that were... I'm not sure about this particular instance. The priests and the Sadducees grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So... They were apprehended. They, were, uh, they responded. They commanded them not to teach or to preach in the name of Jesus. I'm reading in the uh, 19th verse of Acts chapter 4. And it says, But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And I think that that is a, a very powerful verse for equipping us for going out in the work of the ministry and for the work of evangelism, sharing the good news, is we cannot but speak the things that we've seen and heard. We can't share with others the, anything unless we've tasted it ourselves, experienced it. That is a tremendous blessing in preparedness. But they needed more than that. And so they met together. I love this little passage. You might think about this too. Verse 23. After they were apprehended, it says, and being let go, they went to their own company. You know, I, I just like to tie that in with Joe's comments last evening about the ecclesia. There is our own company. There's a group of people that we like to associate with and fellowship with that we, we call the local church. And, and sometimes we, we mingle things together. We're accountable to a local church, but we have our own, our own uh, company right now even. And being let go, we come to our own company. We come together. They reported all that was done. And then they prayed a prayer. And I'm not going to read that prayer to you, but here's what I want. They prayed for boldness. They prayed that they could somehow be hands and feet of Jesus. They prayed that we could just stretch forth thine hand to heal. Did you notice that? They didn't pray that we can stretch forth our hands to heal. They said that we might stretch forth thy hand to heal, verse 30, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the Holy Child Jesus. Now notice this. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. God responded This is God's way. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. How does the Holy Spirit reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment? He can do it any way He wants to, but He has chosen to do it through people like this that were filled with the Holy Ghost that they can speak the Word of God with boldness. So, in summary of how the Holy Spirit can we prove the world? Well, how do you accomplish a task that you set out to do? You've got a task. You've got a job to do. Whether it's uh, you know, working with wood or working with metal or working with food in the kitchen. You've got a job. You've got certain things that you can use. You use the things that are at your disposal, don't you? And if you don't have what you need to accomplish your task, you go out and get it. You use what is at your disposal. How does the Holy Spirit work? He uses what is at his disposal. What is at his disposal? What is available to him? It is believers, disciples, that he can fill with himself. And then he can do the work. And he does it one center at a time. One at a time. Think about the Ethiopians' conversion. The Holy Spirit was, without a doubt, instrumental in His conversion. I'm not sure that I read. Yes, the Spirit said unto him, go join thyself to that chariot. There was an angel. You know, I'm gonna have to turn to that because I, I don't want to get that wrong. I'm still getting used to this new Bible. Maybe somebody can help me. Where's? 8. Thank you. Let's get it right here. Yeah, the angel of the Lord, Acts 8.26, spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way which goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza which is desert. So he did. So an angel was instrumental in this. And I would not want to take away from the power of God or from the present experience an angel being able to do that today. God still has angels at His disposal. But what I was after was the verse 29 when it says, And the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Now the Spirit could have done some magnificent thing or some spectacular event. i thought different times that, you know, why doesn't God just take, I mean, He could do this. He's God. He could do anything He wants to do. He could just cause every time the sun rises from the rising of the sun until the, the going down thereof, let the Lord's name be praised. And He could just cause every sunrise to just have written in in brilliant letters of of burning orange and red and scarlet uh, St. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. People would see that every morning as the sun came up. They could see that and think, okay, God loves the world and He gave His only begotten Son. Oh, okay, I believe that. And I'm saying, he 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 could do that any way He wants to. He could get man's attention with writing the plan of salvation in the clouds. You know, you, sometimes you look out there and you see clouds and you try to... Is that, a, is that a dog in the shape of a cloud? Or a cloud in the shape of a dog? <laughs> what is that? Or, or is, that a, is that a bear? Well, he could write letters in there and have the plan of salvation written out that way. But he has chosen rather to use his Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit has chosen to do one sinner at a time one message at a time, one preacher at a time, one witness at a time, each one having one thing in common, one thing, and that is filled with the Spirit because that's what he has to work with. He has you to work with. So that's what he has at his disposal. There's another, another account, a Philippian jailer, We're well aware of that account. He had an experience. He heard Paul and Silas in prison singing. And somehow that convicted him of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so he came in trembling after the great earthquake and all the the prison doors were open. Everybody was free to go. This jailer comes falling down before Paul and Silas. He says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He was wanting salvation. Somehow he had came under conviction and realized his need of a Savior. And they, they baptized him that same night, I believe, as the account goes. So the Holy Spirit uses what is, is at his disposal, which is disciples that he can fill to do his work. But the second point that I want to make out of this is this. By demonstrating, demonstrating God's standard of righteousness. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm thinking about what it looks like was it four years ago standing on the streets of Seattle and our sisters with their modest dress and their heads covered and the brethren as well in their modest dress and appearing to be godly men and women and singing those songs on the streets of Seattle. I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about what Paul wrote to the Philippians when he said, he talked about this, this world. And he said, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. I can't get the first part of that quotation. But what I'm after is this. That our lives, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, should have a testimony in itself of God's standard of righteousness. And when we heard about moral purity yesterday, That was one of the things that we heard about was God's standard of righteousness. God is absolutely holy and His disciples must live holy lives as well. Let's turn to a couple more passages of Scripture. I realize I've got about two minutes. Very quickly, Ephesians 5.11, I'm just going to quote it, talks about have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So we have a responsibility and there's more scriptures that I could turn to on this. This is, again, our, our ministry. As the Holy Spirit fills us, we have a responsibility to reprove. If we see sin in somebody's life, talking about the world now, there's a place for this in, in the lives of fellow believers, but in reproving the unfruitful works of darkness, Paul says, have no fellowship with that, but rather reprove them. Paul writes to Timothy and says, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Timothy, as a preacher, was supposed to reprove, to bring correction, to bring to notice, to uh, make an awareness of transgression and of sin. In summary of the Holy Spirit's convicting work, it is to show men what sin is to reveal what sin is and that's why we have the law. And that's why Paul used the law there in the first part of Romans to show what sin is. Number 1. Number 2, convince men that they are sinners. They need to be convinced just like you were convinced. Think about again your own salvation process and experience to bring guilt upon the heart of sinners. You see, you've got God's law, you've got them convinced that they were sinners and that the very next thing that should follow would be guilt. You want them to feel guilty. They should feel guilty. You felt guilty. I felt guilty. Show the necessity of an atonement. Something needs to deal with this guilt. Something needs to deal with this sin. This sin needs to be covered. It needs to be taken care of. God has a high, holy, perfect standard of righteousness. Your life doesn't match up to it. God has... a has made the provision the necessity of an atonement cause men to believe in God's provision for sin bringing Jesus Christ into the picture as God's provision for sin lead men to re- bring men to repentance and lead them to true true conversion may God bless us each one as we are filled with the spirit as he uses us to reprove the world of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment.